Well, it's really uh, it's really a blessing. Um, I don't know if you realize it, but right now our teenagers, the reason they're usually there's 50 of them over here. Uh, they're out right now passing out those uh, grocery bags to all the neighborhood around us to invite people to participate in feeding those in Chandler who don't have food, uh, the working poor and the homeless. And so we are really privileged to be part of that. And I just am so proud of our kids for, I mean, getting up, first of all, getting up on Sunday morning is hard enough, but get up to go out and, and pass these things out in the neighborhood. I think that's pretty remarkable. So uh, bless uh, Pastor Brian and all of his team for doing that. I'd like to welcome you uh, to uh, this uh, series that we have, uh, we're in the middle of. Uh, it's called What is a Christian? Uh, now, those of you who are new today would be probably asking the question, well, that seems like a silly question, uh, but, it, but it's really not. And here's why. What we discovered is that uh, in the New Testament, uh, the word Christian is only used three times. And each time it's used, it's not used by the believers themselves. It's used by people from the outside referring to Christ followers. And it was almost always used in a derogatory way. So th- those Christians, uh, Nero kind of coined the phrase, those Christians. And it would be kind of a negative phrase. And, and people say, oh, you know, we don't want to be around those Christians. But and, and what's interesting is in, in the Bible is that because it's not used very much and because it's not defined, we don't really know from the Bible what a Christian is. Over these last 2,000 years, everybody who has called themselves Christians, can it can mean anything they want it to mean. You can say, I'm a Christian, and that means you believe in God. You can say, I'm a Christian, and that means I go to church, or I'm a Republican, or a Democrat, or I give money to the church. It can mean anything you want it to mean, because it's not clearly defined in Scripture. But Jesus used a word that was used among his followers, and they were called people of the way, but he used a very specific word to describe those who were followers of Jesus, and that word is disciple. And now it's not just the front row that knows the answer, even the back row knows the answer to that. So uh, that, that's all, all good. So a disciple, and the problem with the word disciple is that it's very, kind of very terrifying, because you know exactly what it means. You could say, I'm a Christian, Because I was baptized when I was a baby. You can say, I'm a Christian because I was born in the United States. You can say, I'm a Christian because I believe in God. But when you hear the word disciple, that is so terrifying and so specific, you know exactly what it means. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you say, Jesus, what you want me to do, I will do. Where you want me to go, I will go. What you want me to say, I will say. Everything you require of me, I will do. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I am a disciple. And so that's kind of what we've been talking about these last several weeks. And then Jesus, once he told them that they were called disciples, he defined what it means to be a disciple. So he gathered his disciples around him. Uh, these are the, now there's 11 of them because Judas has already flown the coop. And he's got, gathers his disciples around him. He said, uh, 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 press the ear, boys. Come on in close around the table. I want to tell you exactly what it means to be a disciple. And so they're very excited to hear that. And they wonder, what is this going to be? And he says, I want to give you a new commandment. Not that the old commandments are bad. It's just that you weren't very good at keeping them. I'm going to give you a new commandment. And here's the new commandment. Here's what I want you to do. This is what it means to be a disciple. I want you to love each other the way that I have loved you. That is my new commandment. If you want to know how to change the world, you don't do it with guns and swords. 
If you want to know how to, know how to change the world, you don't do it with uh, bullhorns and signs. If you want to know how to change the world, it's to love each other as I have loved you and to love the world, those outside, you know, discipleship, those in the world, you love them the way that I have loved them. So if you ever wonder what it is to be a disciple, Jesus gave you those words. He says, my disciples are those who love each other and love the world the way I have loved them. Now, last week we looked at how Jesus loved and it was to me, it was so beautiful and so unique and so complete. This is what we learned about how to love others in John 1, 14. This is what we read last week. The word became flesh and lived for a while among us. That's talking about Jesus. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of, say it with me, grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. The way that Jesus loved us, the way that Jesus loved the world, those outside of disciples, the way that Jesus loved us is he was filled with grace and truth. Now, those of you that haven't been around the church, Bible, God, very much in your life, you've heard the word grace. Let me tell you what grace means. Grace means that um, it's okay. Okay, you're forgiven. Um, you know, you're you're in the club and uh, it's grace is is a big hug word. OK, let's all hug each other and feel good about each other. That's grace. And that's good. And we all need it. We, in fact, we desperately need it like air. So that's great. Truth is holding somebody accountable. Truth is speaking what you believe, not what you think is truth, but what the Bible says is truth. Truth is speaking words of accountability. So an example of that we gave last week is the woman that was taken in adultery. Uh, all the Pharisees are around ready to stone her. You know that story. And when uh, Jesus came on the scene, he said, whoa, wait a minute. Let's slow down here. He said, all the, first, the one of you spiritual, religious church people, that the one of you that is perfect, the one of you that has not sinned, you, you cast the first stone. And then by the time Jesus uh, looked around the circle, they were all gone. And so he reaches down to this woman who um, was an adulteress. And he says to her, he says, where are your accusers? She said, I don't know where they are. They just kind of disappeared. And uh, he said, well, neither do I condemn you. That's grace. And it's beautiful. It's powerful. And she hadn't done anything to deserve it. Grace is unmerited favor. Okay. She hadn't done anything to deserve it. She was just there, you know. And Jesus graced her. He said, "I, I don't condemn you either. But then he said this. Now, go and don't sin anymore. And so you're kind of going, oh, wait a minute. Which is it? You know, is it accountability or grace? What, what do I do? I, I don't know what to do. And so we talked about last week how that this grace and truth sometimes can uh, be put us very much in what? Tension. Okay? Tension. And what my point last week was that not only should you not run away from tension, you should embrace it because Jesus was not half grace and half truth. The Bible made it very clear last week that Jesus is filled, overflowing, teeming with truth. Filled, overflowing, teeming with grace. He is filled with both. And so that's what brings us to our message today. John said Jesus is the full embodiment of truth and grace. To the brim, overflowing. Again, it's not a balance, but he's filled with both. Now, for you and I, um, uh, some of you have been raised in homes where there's been lots of grace. 
you know, and some have been raised in homes where there's lots of truth. And if you're kind of balanced, you're like me, at least I think I'm balanced. Balanced people never think that they're balanced. But if you do, you know, I had a little bit of both. My mom was grace and my dad was truth. And so you had that thing going on. And and it also extends to this, that um, that you, me, we want lots of grace. Oh, please forgive me. I didn't mean it. I had better motives. We want lots of grace. But we want to hold everybody else accountable to truth. Okay, so I think if we're honest, we'll say, yeah, that's kind of me too. I want lots of grace for me. Everybody should forgive me because they, they should know my heart. And yet we want to be very truth and stern and no, don't do that. Bad, bad, you know, with everybody else. So there's that, that tension once again. Now, what makes, now Jesus decided that I'm going to teach people about this truth and grace thing. And I'm going to teach it by using a parable. Parable is, uh, kind of a, a physical, real-life kind of story didn't really happen, but it's a story that you make up that people understand that says, okay, this is what you see and feel, and this has got a spiritual truth to it. This has got a bigger truth, a bigger moral, a bigger Aesop's kind of a thing. It's got a bigger story to it. So that's what Jesus used when he did parables. And so uh, Jesus, because he was the master storyteller, and if you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Luke chapter 15. Jesus was this master storyteller, and what's incredible about this, this first story that he tells is uh, that um, uh, there, there was this tension. And there was even tension in this audience. Now, last week we talked about the tension, that uh, the woman at the well, there was tension there. Uh, the woman taken in adultery that I just mentioned. Matthew, the tax collector, the thieves on the cross, and how Jesus navigated these waters of grace and truth. Uh, he wants to tell them what this looks like in the form of, of a story. And so what makes this story so amazing, and most of you know the story well. In fact, we just preached on it last summer. Uh, this is the story. Well, I said three stories, uh, three parables, parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin and the lost son. And what makes this story fascinating, and I'm going to come at this from a different angle today, is that I want to look at the audience. Who's listening to the story? And as, as we look at the audience, I want you to see yourself in the audience, and maybe you're on one side or the other, or maybe you're in the middle, you know, maybe you're a covenanter, you're in the middle, and you don't, you know, go one way or the other, and, 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 and so, but just, I want you to see yourself in that, so, um, Jesus is talking, he's the master storyteller, and so there's two groups he's talking to, one group is the, um, uh, the sinners and the bad people, and these people know that they don't belong <laughs> they know that their lives are really messed up, they know that they've sinned, uh, they don't know how to they don't know how to define sin, but they know they do it really well. And they're, they're really in that category, the tax collectors and sinners. So these are the people that are unrighteous. That's part of the crowd. The other part of the crowd, interestingly, is the righteous or self-righteous. The ones who think they've done it all right. These are the religious people. The people who go to church, Sunday school, Wednesday night Bible study, and go to BSF. You know, these are the people who do everything. You know, they do the whole list. And they do all the stuff, and they, they get it right. And they, we know that we've got it right. Okay, so there's this group that we know we're sinners. This other group says, we know we've got the answers. And Jesus speaks to both groups. And this is what he tells them, essentially. Both of you, I love you both, right? But you're both wrong. What? And he says, let me tell you a story. So Jesus, the master teacher begins to talk about the story of this filled with grace and truth and look at it through the real world. So um, when Jesus teaches this way, I, I can just see the audience just they're left gasping for air. Like, 
Are you kidding me? Are you you telling the story for real? So here's what he says in the first couple of verses of chapter 15. Now, the tax collectors and sinners, see, they didn't even have a name for themselves. You'd think they were like, I mean, let's give us a cool name like pagans or, you know, or or Raider fans or something like, you know, let's give us a cool. No, they don't even have a name for them. They're just sinners, you know, and, and they know it. You know, so the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. Now, let me stop right there. <laughs> They're sitting in the front row. Now, uh, you in the front row, and we're going to use you as the front row, too. All of you who are in the front row, um, if you're a sinner, stand. Oh, they know it, okay? God bless you. Sit down. They know it. Now, if I had told the rest of you, say, oh, I'm not going to stand. You know? But the people in the front, they know it, and they're, they're, they're bending towards Jesus. Now, this is a very unlikely likely group. These are people that have none of Jesus' values, none of his morals, none of his teachings. They, they don't seem to fit at all with Jesus. And they're just in the front row, ready to listen. And, and uh, they're gathering around to hear him. Look at verse 2. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, what did they do? They muttered. They muttered. Uh, the Greek word for that means muttered. They muttered. And this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so they're saying, I can't believe that Jesus would hang out with these people. Now, to say that he eats with them was a condemnation. Because when you ate with somebody in Jesus' day, when you gave them food and you partook of their food, you were partaking of their lives. Okay, You were involved in their lives. It wasn't like just going to McDonald's. You were involved with somebody at a very deep kind of intimate level. He just didn't welcome them, but he ate with them. Now, the the first two categories, the tax collectors and the sinners, these guys were just the worst. The tax collectors, as I told you last week, they were the the wealthy traders. These were Jews who were doing the task of the Romans by collecting taxes from the other Jewish people. And they'd always take more taxes than they should because anything they gave to Rome, if they had anything left over, they could keep for themselves. So these people were considered the worst kind of... These are the people that would come driving up to a, an event you know, in, in, a, in a tricked out Escalade. And, uh, and they'd have a posse. These people had everything. They had money and they had a posse and they had reputation. And that's where these people... And everybody hated them. Now, these people knew, along with the sinners, that they would never be approved of because of their lifestyle and their morality. And, well, they were just the worst possible people you could find. And what Jesus is doing in setting us up by paying attention to the audience is he's saying, I want you to have a different perception of the church. See, the church today, when I talk about the church, I'm talking about us as well as other churches. You would find it very difficult to find these kind of sinners and these kind of tax collectors sitting on the front front row, they would be hiding in the back. And they wouldn't be hiding in the back because they didn't want to hear the words of Jesus. They'd be hiding in the back because they would feel condemned by most of the church people, by most of the Pharisees. Hang out in the back. You know, you don't really, you don't belong up here in the front. This is where all the good people, you believe you belong in the back. And so there was this tension and there was these bad people over here. And then over here uh, were the, 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 the Pharisees, the, the self-righteous. They, they knew all the answers and, and they muttered. And, and then here's the question. Why did this group over here, sinners and the tax collectors, why did they like Jesus so much? They had nothing in common with them. 
None of their values and morals were affirmed by him. Why did they like him? So, why were they wanting to hear him? Why were they sitting on the front? And conversely, why was this group uh, angry at him? Why was this group trying to get rid of him? Because they, all their theology and their doctrine, they shared with Jesus. They all believed the same stuff. They believed the Bible. They believed the Old Testament. They, they believed the same. Why was it that this group was so anxious to hear from Jesus and this group was not? Well, that's why he tells the parable. This group is probably saying, you know what? You're eating with these sinners and these tax collectors. Does that mean, Jesus, that you condone their behavior? Because we haven't, tell, we haven't heard you say to them, stop collecting taxes. We haven't heard you say to them, stop sleeping around. We haven't heard them say, stop with your, your, your lifestyle. Uh, stop doing what you're doing. You haven't, we haven't heard them say that. So does that mean he's condoning what they're saying? Well, there's this tension in the room. And there's these two groups and they're the front row and then the Pharisees in the back row. And, and they're listening. And what is he going to say? And again, he's this master teacher. And so here's what Jesus wants to address. He wants to address how God feels about sin and sinners. Well, that's, everyone wants to know that. And in fact, if you find somebody today that's anti-church, anti-Jesus and God, it's because probably they had a bad experience when they were a kid. That somebody shamed them and condemned them and all of that. So, so a lot of people want to know, okay, what does God really think about sin and sinners? So this whole audience is ready to listen. And he tells this, tells this, this story. And he begins in Luke chapter 15. And after he's established who the audience is, the sinners and the righteous, and he begins with something they would all agree on. Sheep. Okay? So that's where he starts. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Now, the audience finds themselves in a very awkward position. And the awkward position is this. They agree with each other. (laughs) Both sides of the audience. The front row and the back row. They all agree. Say, well, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, I mean I, if I had a lost sheep, I'd go fight looking for that. So everybody agrees. And so they're kind of feeling kind of leery, like, are we, are we being set up by this Jesus guy? Because right now I'm, I'm kind of agreeing with the, with the rest of the group. And, so, and then he goes on. Uh, and when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now he's starting to get into the story a little bit and the people are feeling really uncomfortable. There's tension in the room. He said, yeah, I will rejoice, but tell your neighbors, boy, that sounds weird. And, and there's rejoicing in heaven. I don't understand what that means. And then he calls, talks about another parable. And he talks about how you lose the precious coin. The woman moves the furniture looking for the coin. It's like losing your engagement ring, your diamond ring. You look everywhere. And, and the audience is going, okay, we kind of understand that too. We, we do the same thing. And, uh, and the Jesus is basically saying this. Did you know that God is more concerned about lost things than you could possibly imagine? Lost things really matter to God. Okay? Say, okay. I can see the diamond ring. I can see the sheep. You know, lost things. I got it. Okay. And then he dives into his main story. And he talks about the story of the prodigal or the lost son. And again, most of you know that story. Uh, if you've been around uh, the Bible for uh, any length of time. And, uh, and he talks about it in the context of three main characters. There's the dad, the younger son, and the older son. 
Now, uh, the older son is firstborn. How many of you are firstborns? Okay. You guys are the behaviors. Okay. Uh, you behave. Okay. Then when you were a little kid, you behaved. And that's what firstborns do. And uh, the younger son was the what? Misbehavior. And all you firstborns are always, you know, you're spoiled and, you know, all that. So there's the misbehavior. And uh, a dad was uh, in charge of this crew. And uh, that's how the story begins. So uh, the younger son, the misbehavior, comes up to his dad and uh, says, you know, dad, here, here's the point. I, I, I need some money because I've got life to live. And uh, I, 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 I wish you would die. But because you haven't died, I, I wish you would give me my inheritance. Shockingly, surprisingly, in both the audience, the, you know, the righteous, uh, the self-righteous and the unrighteous in the audience, they both said, well, that's weird. Don't do it, Father. You know, they're saying, don't do it, don't do it. And he's, but the dad did it. He said, I'll do that. And so he gives the son this money. And uh, both the Pharisees, now the Pharisees who have sons, are saying, that creep, you know, I would... I would so bust him. You know, the Pharisees are the rule followers. I would so bust him. I'd never give him a nickel. That ingrate, I would just do, the, you know. And, and, and the sinners and the tax, what are they saying? Same thing. Okay, they're still in agreement. Oh, how can that son do that? That's a terrible son. And sinners agree and righteous people agree. They, they just, they, they shouldn't do that. I mean, so the boy goes out and he lives a lifestyle that he could not afford. In fact, he used up everything that it took his father a lifetime to amass. Everybody in Jesus' audience is offended. Everybody, both sides. The self-righteous and the unrighteous, they are offended. Now Jesus continues. There's famine in the land. The young man loses all, has all his money gone and wine, women, and song, the Bible says. And he finds himself feeding pigs. And everybody in Jesus' audience is going, oh yeah, <laughs> now we're getting there. Now we're getting there where it belongs, you know. You know, water seeks its own level. Right. Uh, you know, you always get what you're going to get, you know, in the end. And, and they're feeling pretty good about this. He's eating that and he's getting what he deserves. And now the Jesus tells a story in the extreme. Remember, he's talking in a Jewish culture. A Jewish boy. Working with pigs. Eating what pigs eat. I mean, wow. I mean, can you spell the word comeuppance. Now, you probably can't, but I mean, just think about it. I mean, that's what all everybody's saying. He's finally getting what he deserves. And, and I know how I would feel if I were a father in that situation. Uh, I would feel like the older brother, right? I'd feel angry. Now, l- l- let me just take a side note here for a moment. Some of you that haven't been around church for a while have probably had a nagging question in you for most of your life, and it's something like this. Why are these Christians so daggone angry? Why are these Christians mad all the time? Why are they tooting the bullhorn and telling everybody repent or die? Why are the Christians that in the church I grew up in always going around just scolding me and telling me that I'm a sinner and if I do that, I'm going to be kicked out of the church? Why are they so angry? I mean, that's a, that's a very important question. Why are they, remember the word Anne Rice used? disputatious. Why are they so disputatious? I mean, these evangelists on TV, they're going to mess up their hard hairdos, you know, but they're so mad. And, and the bullhorn guy and the angry nun that some of you grew up with, the, the pastor that was always hitting the pulpit and the deacon who always looked mean at you. And why are they mad? I mean, these people believe in hell and they are looking forward to seeing sinners burn in hell. You know, people like that. 
I think many people that are turned away from church were turned away from that kind of angry. I told you a few weeks ago about uh, that deacon in our church that I grew up in, E. Warden Conway. And I remember one time he was mad at me uh, for something I did. And I said, Dad, why is Mr. Conway always mad at me? He said, oh, son, don't worry about it. He's, he's mad at everything and everyone. I said, why? And I'll never forget what my dad said. He said, I don't know. And then I asked my dad another question that just kind of hung there. He never answered it. I said, shouldn't knowing Jesus make you happy? I was just a kid. I didn't know what I was talking about, but I knew something was wrong. If you say you're the most spiritual guy in the room and you're angry all the time, shouldn't knowing Jesus make you happy? So back to the story. So we have this father and uh, who's been treated so badly and both the unrighteous and the self-righteous are cheering. Yeah, we're going to guy's going to get us come up and send. But there's this the father does something weird. He calls for a community of dancing and rejoicing and a party. And and uh, there's all kinds of things going on. And I will talk about it in just a moment. And and so here you have the younger son who doesn't want to go to the party because he feels like he doesn't deserve it. And you have the older son that doesn't want to go to the party because he knows the younger son doesn't deserve it. And then the father goes and pleads with the older son. Now, I, I know you're angry, but son, come on. And, and then the son, the older son gives a speech. All these years, all these years, Dad, I've been, I've been a good boy. All these years, I've worked in the uh, fields and we got lots of crops. All these years, I've done whatever you want me to do. And you know, so hey, that was his speech. He was the, it was the good son speech, you know, and we've all given that speech to our parents at some time. You know, I'm the, the good son speech. And then, and then, and then Jesus uh, goes on to teach. And this is where it gets really tricky. Now, I want to, again, another little side note. Why are some of us as Christians, as disciples, why, why are we so angry? Well, can I get very nosy for a minute? Um, I, I think some Christians are kind of angry because you think that you should have from God what somebody else has uh, somebody less deserving than you, of course, something that their, their life looks better. They've got more money. They seem to have more happiness. Their kids aren't on drugs. They're not divorced. I mean, why? I think many Christians here are angry because they feel somehow that by their good behavior and they're going to church and doing all the right things, supposedly should somehow give them an advantage. Isn't that a little like the elder son? And I think we have a tendency to be a little bit like the elder son. And even as Jesus is talking to this audience of the unrighteous and the self-righteous, I think they're starting to see that this is a problem. I mean, don't we believe at least part of us as Christians that you reap what you sow? If I've been good, that God will reward me. And when that doesn't happen, guess what happens? We get angry. We get angry. So if that's your life, if that's your case, I mean, I've been there in my life on many occasions. You need to stop and take a look at that. Now, let's get back to the story. So if Jesus had stopped there at that story where um, the son was coming back and uh, he'd been with pigs, uh, everybody would have been happy. Both sides would have been happy. The unrighteous would have felt, yeah, you know, if my kid did that, I'd, I'd, he's a knucklehead. I'd kick him in the head. And yeah, he's going to come back now. He's going to beg. And yeah, it's going to be good. And the self-righteous is saying, yeah, of course. Well, I mean, he needs truth, right? He needs to be hammered. And, and so both audiences are on the edge of their seats. 
thinking that the story is over, okay? It's, it's done. And in fact, they're going to tell that story at the dinner table tonight because it's such a good story, you know? And, and we know that uh, uh, here's what happens if you don't obey your father. Kids, listen to this story, you know? And here's what, uh, is what you need to believe. You reap what you sow. What goes around comes around, and you're at the, around the dinner table, you're telling your kids this, and they're not paying attention, but you're telling them anyway. And you say, it's a great story, right? Both audiences on the edge of their seat, the front row, the back row. And then, but Jesus continues. Uh, this is in 15, 17 to 20. When he came to his senses, this is the younger son, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like uh, one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. And, and the audience is going, oh, okay, this will be really good. You know, this is going to be great because he's going to get what he deserves. And, and uh, you know, the, 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 the self-righteous, the Pharisees, the religious people, they're saying, yeah, before you let this kid come home, make sure he gets into rehab and don't tell his mother he's been with prostitutes. You know, she doesn't need to know that. And, and, he's, and he needs to show me six months of good living before we're going to let him even, he'll have to stay out in the barn. And the, the self-righteous are going, yeah, you got to make sure that he's held accountable and, you know, all of that. And, and the unrighteous are going, Man, what's going to happen here? And then Jesus uh, goes on. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled. Let's stop right there. Filled. Don't look at the text. Actually, it's kind of hard not to look at it, huh? Okay. Uh, Filled. You fill in the blank. Not with that. You're the dad. You're the father. Here's Here's what I fill in. Filled with anger. Filled with self righteousness. Filled with fury. Filled with self-righteous anger. That's what I'm filled with. And that's what they were hearing. And when they heard this other word, the audience, both the self-righteous and the unrighteous, the audience was stunned. Righteous? Anger? I'm righteously justified in my anger? I mean, that's what you're supposed to feel. Then he goes on. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. We go on. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, that's an important word. We'll come back to that. Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Compassion, the unrighteous are saying. Compassion, the self-righteous are saying. I mean, I am sure that his audience gasped at this. This Stinking son that still smells like pigs. He's received with compassion. The audience is confused. And probably you are too. Celebrate? What are we going to celebrate? Now, most think that the story ended there, but it didn't. So the older son, the behavior, right? He's out working in the field. He's coming back from the field. And he hears music and a party going on. And he says to another one of the hands, what's going on? 
Oh, haven't you heard? Your younger brother is back. And the older brother goes, hmm. You know, I wonder, I figured that would happen eventually. Yeah, you're brought, you're brought, but what's all the music in the party? Why is the community, why are all our neighbors coming over here and party, participating in this big celebration? What's going on? And he said, well, your dad decided to uh, kill the fattened calf. And the older brother said, you mean the fattened calf that was saved for my wedding? Maybe. Or my graduation? That, that fattened calf? The one we were spe- saving for special, that, that's the one? Yeah, yeah, that's kind of the one. Sorry about that. And as he tells them all that, and, and, and uh, the party, and he says, your dad tells, told me to tell you that he wants you to come to the party. And at this point, Jesus' entire audience felt kind of a resonance with the older brother. The unrighteous did. They felt like, you know, that's not even fair. I mean, I'm unrighteous. I'm a sinner. I'm a tax collector, and that's not even fair. <laughs> And the self-righteous, they were probably so angry at this point. They'd get up and walk away if they, if, if they weren't, wouldn't be embarrassed by doing so. They, they are so angry. Are you kidding me? That's not fair. That's not right. See, for the self-righteous, you can be a good Christian. In fact, you can start a whole political party around it if you want. I mean, just that kind of Christianity, that kind of Christianity that says, this is the way you do it. The older brother said, you know what? I, I, ha- I haven't even gotten a goat from my father. And then he says to his father, but this son of yours, he doesn't even say my brother. He said, this son of yours, by the way, you know, don't worry, I'm not going to tell mom that he was with prostitutes, but this is just unjust. My son, the father says, and listen to what he says. My son, the father said, he's talking to the older brother. You are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You hear what the father says? This is the most important part of the parable and it's a part that many people fail to hear. He said, son, you are always with me. You and I, we have this beautiful relationship It's not always good because you think you're always trying to prove to me that you're okay, but son, you're always with me. And I've always loved you. I've never stopped. I don't love you because you're a behavior. I don't love you because you're out uh, working in the garden all day doing work. I don't love you. I love you because you're with me. We have this relationship. He said, I haven't forgotten you. But your brother, your brother was dead and now he's alive. Listen, older brother, listen, your younger brother, he's with us. He's with us. That's the key to this whole passage. He's with us. So please, to the older brother, come to the party. Your brother's alive. He's with us. We have a relationship with him. This matters more than anything else. No, I know he's not getting what he deserves. I know that. I mean, this isn't about performance. This isn't about sowing and reaping. This is about proximity. This is about being with us. This is about you and I being with Jesus. Not about how good you are, how much you perform, how many sins you have or haven't committed. It's about being with him. He said, your younger brother, he's back. And we want to celebrate that. It's not about working hard. You and your younger brother are alike. You both think that parties are about performance. But I don't, Father said. I think 
It's about being with. I want to be with you. I want a relationship with you. Now, if you were to kind of pull the curtains back on Jesus at this point and see his heart in this moment as he's telling both groups, the unrighteous and the self-righteous, you you would see something that would, if we get a hold of this, church, please hear this. If we get a hold of this, it'll transform the world. It transformed the world for the first 300 years. Right up until Constantine, right? It, it, it transformed the world because they were just out loving people. They were out gracing people. They were out doing everything they can to tell people about Jesus. But if we get this, it's going to change our world. And it's this. Nothing that you can do will make God love you anymore. And the corollary is nothing you can do will make God love you any less. And, and here's, the, here's the part that we need to hear. That's true for every single person that you look eyeball to eyeball with in your life. Your boss, your kid, your dad, your grandfather, uh, your friend, your schoolmate, every person you look eyeball to eyeball, there's, God loves them that much. God does not discard lost things. God says, I love lost things. Sometimes we think that God gets mad at lost things and that's why bullhorn guys out there yelling at people on Bourbon Street, right? You saw that in the paper yelling at people on Bourbon Street, you know, like that. God isn't mad at lost things. He has compassion for them. He says they're lost. They need to be found. They don't need to be beaten. They don't need to be thrown away. They need to be found. I mean, you lose your phone and you don't blame it on the phone, do you? (laughs) One time, Sherry and I, we lost our son and his cousin for a couple of hours. And it was a terrifying time. But when we finally found them, we weren't mad at them. I mean, we were initially because, you know, after the first few minutes. But then you don't get mad at a lost thing. Where does that anger come from? I'll tell you where it comes from. It comes from self-righteousness. In the back of my mind, I've been faithful. I, I, I. The issue is about behavior. It's about, no, Jesus said the issue is one word and the word is with. Are you with me? When we get this, when this saturates us the way that it saturated Jesus, sin will always break our hearts, of course. Repentance will always stir our hearts. The reason that sin breaks our heart, our sin and somebody else's sin, is because sin always has a gotcha. I mean, we can't say that sin doesn't matter. Of course it matters. It's got a gotcha. And how many times have we been gotten or someone that we love has been gotten? And it's not about the sin. It's about, I don't want you to have that gotcha. I don't want you to be hurt or broken or far from God. I love you and I want to be with you. And that's what matters, not shaming you or condemning you. You see, when we get to be like Jesus, we don't get angry at sin. We have our hearts broken by sin. His father was moved with compassion. If it doesn't break your heart that people are sinning, if you get angry instead of having your heart be broken, you've got some work to do with God because that's the way that Jesus sees sin and the way that he sees sinners. Sin has a gotcha, and it's bad. Of course it is, and Jesus knew that. I mean, come on. Jesus knows that. You know that. You don't have to tell people. People that are sinning know it. You don't have to tell them that. There's that gotcha all the time, but the Father was moved with compassion. When you're filled with compassion, because compassion never, never goes away. That was the Father in the story. So Jesus says to his audience, the unrighteous sinners, as well as the self-righteous people, 
God couldn't love you anymore. And there's nothing you can do that will make me love you any less. Because sin breaks my heart because it's got a gotcha. But I love you and I have compassion for you. Do you know why in our church we make such a big deal out of baptisms? Several times a year we have a baptism service and we have all kinds of people baptized. The reason we make a big deal out of that is because we are telling the story of someone who is lost being found. We're telling the story like the, old, like the father that says, my son has been lost, he's alive now, I rejoice, we celebrate. We don't shame them, we don't condemn them, we don't point our fingers. They're returning to the heavenly father. See, grace and truth together is all about with. It's all about proximity. Some of, some of us today here are lost sheep. Some of us are prodigals. We're lost sons, lost daughters. Maybe for some of you, it's been the first time you've been to church in a long time. Here's what Jesus would say to you, and here's what I would say to you, and here's what whoever invited you would say to you. Come on home. It's not about your performance. It's not about your past. Come on home. And can I say this? I'm one pastor that would say this. I'm not mad at you. And neither is God. I have compassion for you. I have great love for you. I know sin has a gotcha, and I don't want you to experience that, and I don't want you to feel the pain of that. But welcome home. It is better to be with than to be apart. So as we close this morning, I just want to say that to each and every one of you. Come home. There's no anger here, but warmth. And those who favor a relationship with God, people say you can be with God. Come on home. Sometimes we have to just stop and say, you know what? That's me. I I want grace and truth in my life. I want that. I want the love of Jesus, but I don't know how to access it. Here it is. Come home. Would you bow your heads with me, please?